Welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. Well, you guys can go ahead and get your Bibles out. Just have those ready. We're going to pray uh, for our time in God's Word in just a few moments, um, and then we're going to be talking really about the centrality of God's Word in, the, in our growth and maturity uh, as uh, not just believers, but in our framework for knowing and understanding who God is. So if you remember, if you have been with us the last couple of weeks, we're in a sermon series called The Unknown God, but then the un has a line, karate chopped right through it, right? Because God is not the unknown God. He's not the enigma of the universe. God has gone out of his way to make himself known. And it is desire, it is his desire to not just to, to be known, but for you to know him personally. And so we began to build out the framework for how can we know God? And if you're looking at it from kind of an academic standpoint, uh, the, the, the word is theology, the study of God. And how can we do that? And how can we know? And how can we wrap our head around some of those things? And as we begin to unpack those, we've talked about how does God reveal himself? How does God make himself known? And last week, primarily, we focused on a type of theology that's called natural theology. There's a whole theological framework of studying God that focuses on the natural world. It looks at creation, it looks at the universe, it looks at all of those types of things. And within natural theology, there are conclusions that you can come to about who God is that are uh, really exposed through those mediums of study. So whether you're looking at... uh, um, Uh, type of natural sciences or social sciences, what would be kind of wrapped up in the idea of kind of more of a scientific pursuit. It's what can we know of God based on what is in the natural and the physical around us and what we can discern from that. And so you can get into even mathematics and things along those lines. And as you study natural theology, as you move into those sciences, you can begin to come to conclusions about who God is. And we spent some time last week about some things that you can come to as conclusions. But natural theology has limitations. Okay, that framework, that lens, as much as it can show us some great and grand things about God, it does also have limitations. Here's some things that you can learn from natural theology, whether you're looking at kind of the natural sciences or the social sciences and things along those lines. You can see that God is a God of wisdom. Uh, what's really interesting to me is if you get into studying a specific discipline, right? If you're somebody who's gone through kind of an academic progress and maybe you've got a bachelor's degree and you decided to move on from there, the further you go in your academic growth, the narrower the scope of what you know becomes. Did you know that? Like when you get your bachelor's degree, let's say you got a a, a bachelor's degree in literature, like you would have a general understanding of like many genres and kind of the way that literature would be constructed and, and understood. And maybe as you go into masters, that begins to maybe narrow. Maybe you start moving into like grammar and syntax, or maybe you start moving into a specific specific genre of, of literature and you're doing poetry or American lit or something like that. But the further you go, when you get your doctorate, it would like narrow all the way down where maybe you got your doctorate in just Chaucer 
just a single author in all of what that individual has. The further you go in academic study, the narrower your, your scope becomes be, until you become an expert in a little piece of a very broad discipline. And do you want to know why that is? Because the further you go in studying a subject, the more is exposed of what you don't actually know. A, a really learned person, the further they go, they would be a doctorate uh, of, of literature in maybe this person, but they would be first to recognize that they don't know everything about literature. They become an, an expert in a very small part. And in that kind of that growth, in, in, in that um, kind of pursuit, I, I see the exposure of the limitedness of our own wisdom and the grandeur of God's wisdom. In fact, the more you study something, the more you come in contact with not what you know, but how much you don't know and how little you are certain of. It's just a really interesting thing in academics. If you study natural theology and go through these different sciences, uh, one of the things that you'll begin to see is this idea of God being a God of power. Like the, uh, a God of power, the, the, the one who would create things that we can't control. That's a, a bonkers, right? We, we live in a time where we have this limited perspective that somehow we are the masters of our own fate, we're the masters of our own universe, but if it snows, like, we can't even get out of the driveway. Like, I mean, for all of our technology, right, for all of our technology, I've got to be at home with my kids again? Like, are you kidding me? Like, when are we going to figure out how to just deal with whatever those things look like? There, there are natural catastrophes, like those types of things, happening all the time, and they are very humbling, for humanity when it rains too much and we can't figure out what to do with that where this one thing goes offline and we don't have an answer for when there's no electric grid like the more and more of that just exposes uh, our our um, our littleness I guess is the best way that I would put it like we're small and the more you learn the more you grow the more that you see that you're not in control and the more powerful those things can kind of be described. We looked last week about in natural uh, sciences that you can see God's order, see God's creativity. I think that you see God's humor uh, at times, like the platypus. Like, that has to be a joke, doesn't it? Does anybody know? Like, it looks like leftover parts from the Lego box, and he's just like, well, we'll just throw this, see what they do with that, right? Like, I don't, I don't know what to do with that, but they're cute. If you've seen a baby one, you can YouTube them. They're amazing. If you study the natural theology, if you, if you kind of move through those different sciences, you can actually come to a place where you uh, are exposed to the existence of God. And that might feel kind of weird to you because in our secular context, a lot of times what you have been sold is this idea that if you study science, what you'll discover is that God doesn't exist. And that, it's actually not the case. You may be able to kind of convince yourself from your starting assumption based on a certain line of inquiry, but if you were to study kind of the scope of certain sciences, like you couldn't actually draw that conclusion. Did you know that if you studied sociology, if you went into the social, social sciences and you went in with just, here's what I can observe, and you observed the whole timeline of human history, did you know that you would be hard-pressed to find any people group at any point in time that did not believe in a deity or the supernatural? In fact, what you and I would know as kind of atheism, which would be a known and purpose disregard for that type of an idea or concept, is a relatively new ideology, and it was something that started in the 18th, uh, 1800s. 
Like if you were going to consider seriously the idea of human belief and you studied from sociology, you would find that from antiquity to present day, people groups have all had this innate understanding that there is something else and that there is someone in charge of those things. Now, if you went back far enough, you would find that many cultures, the majority of them, had a pantheist view where it wasn't just like a single God. It was like all of these different wild and crazy gods. There was a God of this and a God of that, but there's got to be a God of something because looking at the natural, they couldn't come to any other conclusion. They couldn't draw the conclusion that it was just like the dice being rolled over and over and over and over and over and over again until the proper sequence happened and it was just like spontaneous. So if you were to study sociology, you couldn't get through that discipline to the conclusion that mankind's greatest understanding would be that there is no divine. You would actually draw the conclusion that there has to be something. Kind of interesting, just based on scientific observation and the way those things progress. But here's the limitation of natural theology. It can draw you to this place about God's presence, his existence, his power, maybe his order and some things along those lines, things that he can do. It can convince you of his otherness, right? That like, man, I'm here and I'm finite and I'm little and I can't, and then there's, there's something else that's like way beyond that, right? You can get to that. But what natural theology can't help you draw the conclusion of is God's plan and purpose for your life, his character and disposition towards you. Like you, you, can't, you can't get those from that. You can't look at biology and come to a conclusion that God is a God of love. You can't study humanities and come to a place that somehow God is a God of holiness. Like those types of characteristics of God, his disposition towards you, his character, his nature, those have to be things that are revealed from other sources. And that moves us from natural theology, what you can begin to know and learn about God in just regular living. And in fact, if you had uh, conversations with most Americans right now, Barna came out, and I, I uh, referenced this a couple weeks ago, that still upwards of over 60% of Americans would say that they believe in God. Even though there, there's not really a framework of that being kind of lived out, but there is this acknowledgement of other than this. Even in our highly secularized culture, that's still a really high percentage of where people would find themselves. But you have to, you have to find out about who is this God, and what does he think of me, and what does that mean for my daily life? You have to find that in another source. So it moves us from kind of this field of natural theology that has a, a place and a role and is helpful for us in discovering who God is to moving to another framework or lens for viewing how to study God. And we referenced this a couple of weeks ago as well, and it's called revealed theology. And revealed theology is a whole big, broad concept that really looks at religious experience and scripture. That would be the kind of the big, broad, parenthetical, this is what that is speaking about. So what can I experience for myself, and what can I uh, know because I've been told? If my phone was to ring right now, okay, and I didn't look at caller ID, and the person on the other end used, like, auto-tune to kind of disguise their voice, right? If that happened right now, and I turned my phone over, and I hit uh, the green button, and I hit speaker, and it came on, and I said, hello, this is Ben, which is usually if you call me, that's what, it, that's what you get. Hello, this is Ben. I know who I am, and so now it's your turn to tell me who you are. 
So hello, this has been, I could tell you, based on what they said, whether or not it was one of these four people. Okay, so if I turn this over, I hit it, I said, hello, this has been, and the person on the other end said, what up, Snoop? I could tell you who that was. Now, you don't. You don't know who that is, but I do, not based on caller ID and not even by the tone or the sound of their voice. I know who that is because of what they said. If I hit the green button and it came up and it said, hey there, Benjamin, I know who that is. Now, you don't know who that is. You'd probably think it's my mom. It's not, but I know who that is. If I hit the green button and it said, hey there, Chongo, I know who that is. Some of my Spanish-speaking friends are like, hmm. And if I hit the green button and somebody just yelled after I said, hello, this is Ben, if they just yelled, Binky, I know who that is. Because of what they said. Because of what they said. Here's an interesting thing. I don't know if you like to learn extra stuff or if you want a vocabulary word that you can kind of run down on later on. But did you know that every individual, so look around, somebody next to you say, this is every individual, this counts for you. You at home, point to yourself if you're alone or point to somebody who's there if they're there. Point to your cat, something. Every individual has their own idiolect. That's the word you got to write down. Look it up later. I-D-I-O-L-E-C-T, idiolect. Okay, an idiolect is this. It's your own unique use of language. Did you know that, that you have a fingerprint? It's unique. Did you know the way that you communicate, the way that you speak, the way that you construct vocabulary and your speech patterns are unique to you? Now, there's a lot of blending of that, right? You hang out with a friend who's got like a new slang word, and then you start to kind of adopt that, and then it becomes kind of part of your norm, right? So there, there's, there's some fluidity to it. But what they've discovered is that each person has their own idiolect, if you need to kind of hinge this on another concept, like if you've ever talked about idiosyncrasies, right? It, those are patterns of behavior. Same type of root idea, only it is linguistic. Everybody has their own idiolect. And so I know, I know who's calling me because I've experienced them and I know how they communicate. And it's the same every time. And you and I can know someone by learning their voice, okay? And that's not just like their pitch and their kind of their syntax and kind of their tone or their cadence, but what they speak to us and how they speak to us. And in fact, some of the ways that you know people, some of the ways that you have informed your relationships with others, good or bad, has been based on the way that they spoke to you. And even if they try to change that, it can be difficult for us to overcome that, right? So you've got a parent who always spoke down to you, but now they're kind of trying to make amends and they're trying to speak life into you, but you can't receive it because you can only hear the old speech pattern, right? Do you understand what I'm talking about? Like you know them on a deeper level because of what you've experienced and what you've heard spoken. And I just want to suggest to you that you and I can become more familiar with who God is through the same means a God who we experience, and a God who speaks to us. If you've got your Bible, that's where we're going to be um, focusing our attention today, not just in it, but we're going to be focusing on it. I want to encourage you to get that out. If you've got your smartphone or your tablet, go ahead and open up your Bible app and raise it up high as we ask the Lord to give us a soft heart towards it today. God, I ask that you would give us a soft heart towards your word, 
that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what you would speak to us through it. Lord, that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit to take steps of courage to apply it to our lives, steps of faith to apply it to our lives, to trust you as you would lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin to kind of look at this idea of the way that God would reveal himself to you through what we can know and experience through his voice, that brings us to this idea of revealed theology, right? So revealed theology has to do with religious experience and scripture. We're going to be focusing specifically on the idea of God's spoken and written words. So that would bring us to kind of a subset in revealed theology, which would be bibliology, which is just a study of your Bible. Look at how learned you guys are this morning. And so we're going to be looking at God's word, but before we start looking at what you would generally consider God's word, right? That's your Bible, that's your flip-flapper right there in your hands, or that's your, your app that you've got, right? Okay, I want to draw your attention to God's spoken word first. And I think that this is important for us to remember. Long before, listen to me, long before any scripture was written, Okay, before chisel went to stone or ink went to papyrus, whether, uh, you know, pen went to paper, like however you want to kind of look at the progression of that through the canonizing of Scripture. Long before any of God's word was written down, it was spoken and lived out. Have you ever thought about that? I don't think we do. We don't, we don't really pause to think about that. Many times the way that we approach the Word of God is when we begin to read it, especially if it's a new place to us, we're almost reading it as if we're there in real time. Uh, we're almost reading it as if it's happening in that case. And we'll even be thinking about maybe in this, these types of an ideas that as it's happening, that the narrator is next to it maybe writing it down. But the things that are recorded in Scripture that reveal to us who God is and how God interacts with people, His plans and purposes for creation, the value of a human life, those things were all spoken and lived out before any of it was written. In fact, if you've studied the way that the Bible has been put together or kind of the progression of that, uh, in general, they would say that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers would be the oldest uh, scriptures that were written. Now there's some kind of, uh, uh, there's some consideration of the book of Job because the book of Job, they don't actually know who the author was, although there's some ideas in academia. And then they're actually not sure what time frame it is. They're just guessing based on literature from other different time frames. But if you're looking at scripture, if you're considering Genesis, right, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Those, pen, those words weren't penned at the moment of creation. It was long, long after. And really, they're saying about 1500 B.C., 1400 B.C., like right around in there. Studying kind of the Exodus and Moses, who's attributed to be the author of this stuff at this time. But here's why this is important. God was speaking and interacting with people long before it was written about. He was revealing himself to people in real time, in real place, and he was speaking to their hearts and their situation long before it was written about to be read or understood as an example. And that's not to say that God's word isn't central to your understanding of who he is. It absolutely is. It's not to say that it's not central to your growth and your maturity as a believer. It most certainly is. 
but God revealed himself through his scriptures so that we would have an understanding of how he would reveal himself to us personally because that's what he was doing before the scriptures were ever written. So if you go back to Genesis and if you look at the first couple of chapters, what is God doing after he creates? He's speaking with Adam and Eve and he's walking with them in the garden. Before it was written about, he was already doing that. If you progress through Genesis, what is God doing with Noah? He's speaking to him. He's giving him design and purpose for his life and even writing out in detail the assignment that he is supposed to have. If you move on from there and you get to Abram, who we understand to be changed to Abraham later on in his life, he was called out of where he lived and called into the promises that God had for him. Long before it was written about, he was living it out. And if you move on to Moses and the burning bush and the calling of his life and the exodus of God's people, that was lived out before it was written out. It was lived out before it was written out. And in all of those cases, and kind of as you progress through the Old Testament, as you bump into those stories that we would say are kind of the central stories that you learn maybe in Sunday school, you'll find that God's interaction with them would, would be recorded in this way. So God said to this person. So the Lord said to that person. The word of the Lord came to this individual. And as, in fact, as you go through the Old Testament, if you took the time to read through it, you would see this progression that as God begins to speak to those who were identified as the prophets, the ones who would hear God speak to them and speak it, speak that life and that challenge into people, that the phrase began to be used, the word of the Lord came to this prophet, and he said, the word of the Lord came to this prophetess, and she said that God was doing that before it was being recorded. And the reason why this is so important for us to grasp, for us to have a comprehension of, is because that is precisely the way we got the recorded written word. See, there's a lot of, there's a lot of critique about the written scripture. So I don't know if you've bumped into that just in kind of school. I don't know if you've kind of been in circles where there's been a critique applied to God's word, whether it's trustworthy, whether it's accurate, there's a lot of different kind of views, liter uh, literarily, uh, historically, uh, archaeologically, all kinds of different concepts. And then you have other types of sciences that would maybe come to discoveries or come to things that they would discern as answers that would seem to be juxtaposed against something that would be in God's Word. And now you feel like this tension. And I remember in the 80s when I was uh, really young and growing up that there was kind of this presentation that somehow the sciences was like its own thing and like faith was, was the other and they were irreconcilable and they were always at odds. And I can tell you that's non sense that the God who created and the God who can be understood through his creation is the same one who spoke and acted and wrote it out in a way that you and I could receive it and that those are not irreconcilable but that they can overlay one another and they inform one another but the way that we can understand that we know and can trust God's word is because what was written was already something that had been lived out and done. He was speaking that. He was doing that. And then it's being something that's recorded. In 2 Peter chapter 1, as Peter is kind of writing this letter to the church at the time, he begins to address the idea of prophecy in Scripture. How can we be for certain? How can we know? How can we stand on this? 
because I don't know if you know this or not, the word of God has always been attacked. Like we live our life out as if somehow like this is the time in human history where faith is being attacked or where the word of God is looking to be discredited. Can I tell you, the whole time. The idea of pursuing the right and true creator of all things has always been, has always been maligned. This is a sidebar. This is just an interesting uh, uh, observation that I've made. If you studied sociology, right, and, and you were looking at kind of the way that cultures developed uh, theology, you would look at the Greeks and the Romans and they would have mythology, right? You would have all of these other different types of cultures that may have like a, a, a spiritist or an animism, a pantheon, all kinds of different ideas. But if you look and study uh, cultures of antiquity, their deity frameworks were almost exclusively pantheon. It was never that there was one God. It was like there was maybe one main God, but there was a bunch of other gods and then maybe some sidekick gods, right? It was like Marvel, right? There's not just like one superhero. There's like so many. Now there's multi-dimensions and it's just like, we're just going to milk this for all it's worth, okay? <laughs> that was the framework. Did you know that when God started calling people to know him again, and they were called to worship the one true God. Do you know who the weirdos were? The people who worshiped the one true God. And it wasn't because they believed in God. It was because they believed in just one. So you, you, they're the weirdos. The people of God were the weirdos because they believed in the one true God. And everybody else believed in many. And what's so interesting to me is we've become so secularized as a culture and, and most of the Western world is, has, has been wrapped up into this type of an idea. We've adopted this idea that the weirdos are still the ones who believe in the one true God and the ones that believe in nothing at all are the ones that got it right. And I just find that humorous because you can go on either side of that timeline and it's those who believe in God the one true God, who are always at odds. Like the, the truth is always under assault. And in whole human history, there was a pursuit of trying to squelch that out through pantheon. And now there's a whole move of secular relativism that is trying to do the same thing. It's by design. That's why Paul says that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the rulers of this dark world. God's word has, it's always been under attack. It's always been under attack. And so as Peter's bringing some kind of life to this, he says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so he's answering a criticism of God's word at the time that would say, well, that's just something that a man made up or that a person writ wrote just for themselves. And so he's answering that with this uh, origin of understanding of how we got God's word and where it was something that was birthed. Paul says something similar to Timothy in his second letter in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says this, he says, all scripture is God-breathed. In fact, the Greek word there is really important. It means that it originates from and out from. Not that it was just inspired, like, you know, if you looked at a tree and it inspired you to write a poem, 
Like, no, it's not saying that God is the inspiration of what has been written as if man is trying to find his way to him, but God is the origin of what has been spoken. And what has been spoken and done has now been recorded for us to understand. And when you kind of look at this, and as you study this, what you find is that spirit-moved men produced spirit-breathed writings. And that's kind of a challenge for us. But it's also the thing that makes the Bible the most unique piece of literature ever in all of human history. I don't know if you know any of the details about the Bible, where it came from, how we got it. It's inexhaustible, uh, inexhaustible in the way that you can study it out. But the Bible, it's got 66 different books in it. There's at least 40 different authors that are known. And it was written over a time span conservatively of 1,500 years, and yet it has the same theme. You can find Jesus expressed in every book. You can find God's plan of redemption in every book. From start to finish, you don't see real ambiguity or things that are in contention. There's things that find themselves in uh, a, a tension of uh, timeline or find themselves in kind of a tension of spectrum. So how do I reconcile God's anger towards sin and brokenness that are destroying his creation with his love? Like those are, those are real tensions, but they're not actually in conflict. There is a, a, a lot of times a, a scrutiny of God's word, a critique of God's word. That would say, well, it can't, it can't actually hold up to the critique. It can't, it can't actually be right. It can't actually, uh, you know, it, it, it can't line up. God's word is inerrant. That means that it was without errors in its original autograph. That God's word is infallible. It means it's not wrong. And we don't like those things because a lot of times what God's word does is it exposes the wrongness of our world and the wrongness in us. And we don't like that. So we would rather try to argue it as being wrong in itself. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even dividing the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And it's judgment, it, render, it renders accurate judgment. As much as I would want to explain that away and kind of move that off. But here's the interesting thing about Scripture. The Bible has endured hostility and criticism for generation after generation after generation after generation. And can I tell you this? The Word of God will endure. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, it says that the grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of God endures forever. And I want you to have a broader understanding of what that means. That doesn't mean that just your Bible manuscript endures forever. They could take every Bible that's ever been printed. They could hunt up every stone, papyrus, uh, paper manuscript. They could find all of that collectively, and they could look to eradicate that from the earth. But can I tell you that the word of God endures forever because the word of God was spoken before it was written and it is still being spoken. And that's, again, not to say that the Bible, that this Bible shouldn't be cherished and loved. That it, that it shouldn't be something that we have an adoration for or a high value for. 
We have friends and missionaries of our own that are in hostile places in the world where people will smuggle in just a sheet torn out of a Bible at risk of life and imprisonment because they love God's word. But can I tell you, God's word is meant to help us discern his voice. See, all of what is written in Scripture, as God would reveal himself in that way, is to reveal to me how he would speak to me and how he would engage in my context, how I could experience him because he's done it before. So I know that when he speaks this verse, when I hear that word, man, that sounds just like the Lord. And that when the world would try to offer a counterfeit, try to disguise its voice with auto-tune, kind of confuse you, that it still rings true because maybe it sounds kind of like something that you heard before, but it doesn't ring genuine. That's where the Word of God is so helpful for us. From the very beginning, God was speaking to His people, and they were experiencing Him personally. And that's what's recorded in Scripture, and that's what is offered to you. God has revealed himself in that way to invite you to have that type of relationship with him. And that's where the Word of God becomes the best tutor for your life. Because you begin to discern how God would act in your situation, how God would speak to you in your situation, because he has done it, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the Lord your God, and I do not change. That I can be... uh, that I can be convinced of that. God looks to reveal himself to you and I so that we would know him personally. So that we would know him personally. In John chapter 10, Jesus said this. He says, My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. The invitation for you is to discern with certainty how the Lord would speak to you and lead you in the life that you're living. And that's the invitation that he gives to us. Church family, if you would stand, worship team, if you would come forward, we're going to take a moment to respond today. As they're making their way forward, I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes for a moment. And I'm going to ask you kind of an introspective question. It's going to be a little bit more of a personal question. And so I want to give pause for this. But I want you to consider this. How, how would God speak to you? How would God speak to you right now in your situation? How would he speak to you in your situation? And I use that broad term situation because you can put anything kind of in there. If you're wrestling with issues of self-worth and identity, how would God speak to you? If you're in a place where you are trying to discern a decision about finances or employment or your future, how would God speak to you? If you are wrestling through loss and grief, you are going through a season of doubt, if you feel lost, like like how would God speak to you? See, knowing his word and how he has spoken to others in similar situations gives a set, 
of expectations for how he might interact with you. How would you experience God in your situation? Man, the Bible is full of varied and wild situations. Man, if you're a single mom and you don't have anywhere to go and you don't know what your next steps are, do you know that the way that God would speak to you and what he would speak over your children, that that's in there? Did you know that if you're a person who you've, you've had it all, life was easy, life was good, and then you lost it all in a moment, and you're sitting in ash and brokenness, and you, is there any hope, and have you been abandoned? Is there anything left? Did you know, like, that's in there? If you've been a person, or if you are, are presently in a situation where you've got affluence and influence, you've got power and authority, you've got it made, what to do and how to steward that, in a way that honors God and cares for your community, that that's in there? That if you're being pressed to compromise your values, how to respond to those things are in there? If there is an antagonist at work or a person in your life that has just made it their priority to ruin yours, how to respond, how to endure that, man, that's in there. Hagar's in there. The rich young ruler is in there. Job is in there. If you feel like God's calling you to great things, but you are insecure in yourself and you think very little, you have nothing to offer. Moses is in there. Gideon's in there. Peter's in there. Paul's in there. Like as much as your situation is unique to you, there are elements of it that are in there. And if you would know his word, you would begin to discern his voice and experience him in your situation today. Lord, would you give us that expectation? Lord, that we would come to your word not to know about you. That's not the point. Not to be able to quote verses and win arguments not be able to somehow show ourselves as puffed up with the things that we've learned. Lord, your, God, your, your, your word is an invitation for us to, to not just know what's in it, but to know who wrote it. You invite us to know you. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd give us a growing value, not for what we can learn, but how we can know you more. That we would spend time in your word. Not just reading about the author, but that we would have you as our tutor. That we would know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Action steps for you this week are going to be really simple. You can snap a picture of these or you can catch them up on Facebook. But I want to encourage you to maybe read through John chapter 10. That's the... Uh, Jesus has the Good Shepherd chapter and talks about how we can learn and discern his voice. Number two, I would take some time this week for prayer 
and contemplation. Take some time to listen as you discipline yourselves in that way. And then number three, journal what God is speaking you through his word and maybe share that with somebody else as you process that.